Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about cyberpunk a little more. Why? Because as we had suspected when we saw the Christmas Eve delivery of their first lawsuit against them, they have in fact been served with a second lawsuit. Now, if you look very closely at the thumbnail to this video, you will see in the parenthetical below the big headline that I want to talk about why that probably doesn't matter much, even though it is absolutely worthwhile of being covered as a news story as it is here in gamesindustry.biz. CD Projekt faces a second class action lawsuit over Cyberpunk 2077. Firm says content subject and scope is same as the first suit, reiterates it will undertake vigorous action to defend itself. CD Projekt has confirmed receipt of another class action lawsuit from a law firm representing its own investors. Now that's one area that I did want to talk about. A lot of people just kind of pop into the comments to the earlier video that we did on CD Projekt Red being sued and have said, well, it's about time, it's a bad game, consumers can finally have their rights restored or whatever the comment might say in any particular circumstance. And it's important to note that this is not a product's liability or consumer-facing set of lawsuits. These are the investors in CD Projekt, most specifically American investors that are suing under American securities laws for what we consider to be fraud on the market. That's what they are alleging, that Cyberpunk and CD Projekt and CD Projekt Red went out with statements to the marketplace that were so factually wrong that they consisted of fraud and that the people that bought and sold securities on the market during a particular period, really between January of last year and the release of the video game, were defrauded by CD Projekt not being truthful with the investors in that marketplace. So we aren't talking about a consumer set of lawsuits. We're talking about investor lawsuits. Now, this is a second class action. We can actually go and look at the statement that CD Projekt has made uh, that Game Industry Biz points us to. It says, the management board of CD Projekt SA with a registered office in Warsaw, hereby referred to as the company, hereby announces that it received confirmation from a law firm cooperating with the company that a second civil class action lawsuit has been filed in the United States District Court for the Central District of California by a law firm acting on behalf of a group of holders of securities traded in the USA. The content of the claim, including its subject and scope, is the same as the one disclosed by the company in current report 68-2020 of 25 December 2020. The complaint does not specify the quantity of damages sought, and the company will undertake vigorous action to defend itself against any such claims. And that's all we get from CD Projekt, but this is, of course, being reported on the internet. Not wrongfully so, but perhaps missing a little bit more of the specifics that hopefully we can illuminate here in virtual legality, that this represents CD Projekt getting sued again, that they now have to deal with a second class action lawsuit. But it's very important to note what they say here, which is that the content of the claim is the same as the one disclosed by the company earlier. The same one we talked about earlier in this series on CD Projekt Red on Cyberpunk entitled CD Projekt Sued that talked about the specifics of the claim brought against them. The specifics being that CD Projekt lied into the marketplace and defrauded its investors. Now that lawsuit, which we took a look at in that video, I highly recommend checking it out if you're interested in the specifics there, was trying to certify a class. Now you might be familiar with the phrase class action, but it effectively means that we've got this plaintiff here that we feel was defrauded and we feel that their particular instance represents the same kind of situation that would apply to a broader quote-unquote class of people. 
You see here in paragraph 35 of the complaint that the Rosen Law Firm filed, plaintiff brings this action as a class action pursuant to Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 23A and B3 on behalf of a class consisting of all those who purchased or otherwise acquired the publicly traded securities of CD Projekt during the class period, which again was January 2022, roughly the release of the video game. The members of the class are so numerous that joinders of all members is impracticable. We can't tell everybody that this is happening. So court, just tell us that we have a class and everybody in the U.S., the way the U.S. law works, will be assumed to be in the class unless they formally opt out of the class. Plaintiffs claims the plaintiff that we have found, the Rosen Law Firm, are typical of the claims of the members of the class. Plaintiff will fairly and adequately protect the interests of the other members. All these things that say, hey, we should be allowed to certify this class. This is a class of people that are similarly affected by the actions of this company. Court, won't you help us out? And if we go and we look at actual the federal rule of civil procedure 23A and B3, we see this mirrored in those federal rules. One or more members of a class may sue or be sued as representative parties on behalf of all members only if the class is so numerous that joinder of all members is impracticable. There are questions of law or fact common to the class. The claims or defenses of the representative parties are typical of the claims or defenses of the class, and the representative parties will fairly and adequately protect the interests of the class. And if that sounds like exactly what you saw in the complaint, that's really how complaints are written. If you break down all of the legal documents that we look at in virtual legality and you go down to the rules or the element of the claim that's otherwise specified in the statute or here in the rules of civil procedure, you will see that that's how you write a legal document. You look at these prerequisites, one, two, three, four, you make sure there's a paragraph that states that what is necessary to have something like this, a certification of a class, is present in what you are claiming to the court. Now, that's in the document. You're also making sure that that is in fact the reality of the situation that you have found a plaintiff that represents all these things, that the class should have this quality that should get certified by the court. And if that is in fact the case, then the court will certify the class and you'll proceed on with your lawsuit. Now you also saw them reference uh, B3 here, which says that you can have a class if it is satisfied and if The court finds that the questions of law or fact common to class members predominate over any questions affecting only individual members, and that a class action is superior to other available methods for fairly and efficiently adjudicating the controversy. And then the court has some rules that it uses to determine whether that is in fact the case. But that is what this law firm has brought to the court. Says, hey, this is a securities class action. This is about effectively stock or stock equivalents sold into a marketplace. We've specified dates. All of the investors that bought things between these two time periods will be affected by the fraud on the market. And so the questions of law or fact, the things that the judge has to determine are so common to the class members that they predominate over whatever differences they might have. The difference in date, the difference in cost, whatever that might be, the actual fact that they were investors in this particular stock over this particular time period predominate. And in fact, securities laws are very much uh, class action oriented when you talk about representing an investor group. That's why you have firms like the ones you see in this case that are actually almost entirely dedicated to representing class actions in securities cases like this one. Now, what we've got happening in the instant case as of today is that a new law firm has appeared and has also sued CD Projekt Red as they describe it in the exact same way that this happened back on Christmas Eve of last year. Now, why does that happen? And what will the court make of that? Well, the first thing to understand 
is that CD Projekt Red is unlikely to be facing two specifically different lawsuits. This is a very common occurrence in securities class actions where you have one law firm bring a lead plaintiff, start the lawsuit timer. We're going to talk about that timer in just a second. And then more lawsuits follow after that. But we don't like inefficiencies in the justice system, I say. Somewhat tongue-in-cheek, it's a very inefficient system in and of itself, but we try to avoid them as much as possible. So in steps Rule 42 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure that says, we can consolidate these things. If actions before the court involve a common question of law or fact, the court may join for hearing or trial any or all matters at issue in the actions, consolidate the actions, or issue any other orders to avoid unnecessary cost or delay. And for convenience, to avoid prejudice or to expedite and economize, the court may order a separate trial of one or more separate issues, claims, cross-claims, counterclaims, or third-party claims. They can actually split this thing up. And that makes sense intuitively. We want the court, if it's facing three or four or five separate lawsuits that all talk about the same group of people experiencing the same alleged fraud by a company, to say, okay, we should determine this all at once. Which is why when you've got securities class actions, they are very often consolidated, and I would say is very, very, very likely to be the case here. So CD Projekt as a company isn't likely to be facing two separate vectors of liability or lawsuit or anything like that. This is really talking about one specific problem that they have because the court's likely to consolidate them. The second kind of component of this is the why. Why does that second law firm show up? And if you're familiar with lawyers or even our discussions in virtuality, you know a bit about the answer to this question already, and that's because of money. So one of the things that happens here, and I've brought up the Private Securities Act of 1995, we're going to talk about the specifics here, is that the law firm that gets named as the law firm for this class under Rule 23 is going to be the ones that make the legal fees. So if you scroll down here and you keep scrolling and you keep scrolling because rules of civil procedure are long and arduous, you keep scrolling and eventually you'll get to the letter G. And G says a specific thing. It says, unless a statute provides otherwise, a court that certifies a class, they say, yes, this class exists, must appoint class counsel. The court does. In appointing class counsel, the court must consider the work counsel has done in identifying or investigating potential claims. So very often, the, the law firm that brings the complaint initially will get a little special benefit under this subsection. Counsel's experience in handling class actions, if you've done this before. Counsel's knowledge of the applicable law. What are you suing over? And the resources that counsel will commit to representing the class. Are you big enough to actually handle a lawsuit of this type? The court can also consider any other matter it determines pertinent. This is an equitable kind of thing that the court does, and that might be the end of it, right? Hey, you bring all your lawsuits, the court decides, what does it really matter? The court doesn't have to even decide the law firm that the lead plaintiff is represented by. Well, as you've probably already guessed if you're watching this on video, that red highlight makes all the difference in the world, unless a statute provides otherwise. And as I already mentioned, we've got a statute that talks specifically about class actions in the private securities context, which is what we're talking about right now. You've got private actors, the investors, who are suing over securities. And so you find yourself in this statute working on a different set of rules. Now, what are those rules? So the first is trying to figure out who the lead plaintiff of this thing is, right? So the original filer, here the Rosen Law Firm, has to, within 20 days that they file the complaint, cause to be published a notice advising members of the purported plaintiff class 
They have to actually go out there into a widely circulated national business-oriented publication or wire service and say, hey, we've brought this lawsuit. Anybody that wants to be a member can join. And also that's going to trigger a timer that says you can ask to be the lead plaintiff. And in fact, we see that when they filed this thing on December 24th, they in fact put out a press release that did all of this because this isn't their first rodeo. They've sued a few people for securities class actions before. They know that the very first thing you do, you guys see they actually filed this the day they filed the lawsuit, is tell the world because if you tell the world, then the timer starts running. Not later than 60 days after the date on which the notice is published, any member of the purported class may move the court to serve as lead plaintiff. 60 days and no more. That's a hard deadline. So the purported class has to know that this is happening. They would have had to invest in CD Projekt during the time period in question and say, hey, I think I make a better lead plaintiff and I tell the court that. And that's a 60-day timer. Once that's gone, you move into the next area, except when you don't. You see here that the actual law talks about consolidating multiple actions. If more than one action on behalf of a class asserting substantially the same claim or claims arising under this chapter is filed, as we saw it just was in the case of CD Projekt, only the plaintiff or plaintiffs in the first filed action shall be required to cause notice to be published. So the timer's running, but you've got another action that has started. They don't have to give a separate notice, which is why we didn't see one other than the fact that CD Projekt has told us that it occurred because they're a public company and they have to deliver this information. And so we start to get now into what the court has to do to determine who the lead is going to be. And we'll see why that's important in just a second. Not later than 90 days after the date on which a notice is published under subparagraph AI. That is the notice on the wire that we just looked at from the Rosen Law Firm. So something like late March, the court shall consider any motion made by a purported class member in response to the notice that wants to be lead plaintiff and will start deciding who the lead plaintiff is. But... If more than one action on behalf of a class asserting substantially the same claim or claims arising under this chapter has been filed and any party has sought to consolidate those actions for pretrial purposes or for trial, the court shall not make the determination required by Clause 1 until after the decision on the motion to consolidate is rendered. So if you get your lawsuit in within that timer period, then the court will hold on picking a lead plaintiff until it's been determined whether the cases should be consolidated or not. So that's your timer if you're a different law firm. You get your lawsuit in, you have a little time after Rosen puts forth their press release. And if you get that in and ask for it to be consolidated, which is very likely in this case, then the court will hold on determining a lead plaintiff. As soon as practicable after such decision is rendered, after we determine whether to consolidate or not, the court shall appoint the most adequate plaintiff as lead plaintiff for the consolidated actions in accordance with this paragraph. Now, you might recognize the phrase there, adequate plaintiff, and say, what in the world does that mean? And we find that this statute actually talks about that. Subject to a bunch of other things, the most adequate plaintiff in any private action is the person or group of persons that either filed the complaint or made a motion in response to the notice, so either filed it themselves or asked to be made lead plaintiff. In the determination of the court, has the largest financial interest in the relief sought by the class and otherwise satisfies the requirements of Rule 23, which is in general the standard rules for representing a class of this type. You can adequately protect. You're you're not cross-interested in various other things. So if you file the actual complaint, you'll get a certain special consideration. But if you have the largest financial interest, including a largest financial interest in a later consolidated lawsuit, you could also be named lead plaintiff. 
So one of the things that these law firms are doing is they're scrambling around trying to get a lawsuit in, oftentimes trying to get it in first, like you see with the Rosen Law Firm, but also trying to get the individual or individuals that have the most to lose in this particular fraud claim. So that later filed lawsuit might say, hey, we found somebody that's worth more and can adequately represent the class. We're going to consolidate these actions and we're going to take over court, tell us that we're the lead plaintiff. Rosen Law Firm is kicked out and then we get to control. Why do we get to control? Well, if we scroll down a little bit further, you see that the selection of lead counsel in a securities class action doesn't have to follow by the court appointment from all those rules we read in Rule 23, but is instead the most adequate plaintiff shall, subject to the approval of the court, which can deny things, but probably not unreasonably, select and retain counsel to represent the entire class. So instead of what Rule 23 says, that the court will do all this stuff and evaluate experience and knowledge and resources and what it's already done in respect to the class, this rule in the Securities Act says the most adequate plaintiff, the, the lead plaintiff that the court has determined gets to pick who represents the class. And nine times out of 10, that's going to be the law firm that it danced with to start all of this up. So this second law firm comes in and says, hey, we're going to bring this lawsuit. It's going to get consolidated. Our guy is better than your guy. Our guy is going to be lead plaintiff. And we are going to start to get the legal fees, right? Because if we're lead plaintiff, we can collect all these legal fees uh, as part of a class action. And I think I actually highlighted this down here in the, in the main class action rule. In a certified class action, the court may award reasonable attorney's fees and non-taxable costs, and that's what these folks are playing for. Nothing wrong with that, of course. Lawyers provide professional services. They deserve uh, the fees that they get for providing those services, but that's why you see what you see today. And at the end of the day, virtual legality is for that, if nothing else, is to try to establish what's happening in the world of business and law that maybe you can't quite see with just a headline that says CD Projekt faces a second class action lawsuit, which isn't wrong. That's not non-factual, but it also isn't fully encompassing of the story here, which is that CD Projekt is unlikely to ultimately face multiple lawsuits. They will have one consolidated lawsuit against them. And what you are seeing now in these announcements and may well see until the end of February or the end of March is other law firms trying to find a lead plaintiff that might be better suited in order to win those legal fees and represent the class as part of the action. That's been Virtual Legality for today. I hope you enjoyed this video. If you did, please like, subscribe, share, ring bells, tell people we're having conversations about Cyberpunk and CD Projekt a little more uh, than we might otherwise like, and certainly about other aspects of technology and pop culture in general, whether that's video games, music, movies, television, or the other stories that you are otherwise interested in. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of virtual legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.